Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Bria Barthel. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley's report on how New York State schools are losing $1.8 billion in tax giveaways by industrial development agencies, also called IDAs. Then Willie Terry brings us some excerpts from the judge sentencing the gunman who killed 10 people at a top supermarket in Buffalo last May. Later on, Garrett McCary talks with Megan Myers on the work of the Rensselaer County Soil and Water District, including their upcoming Envirothon. After that, Paul Stewart and I discuss an upcoming event sponsored by the Underground Railroad Education Center, featuring Professor Janelle Hobson, author of the book, When God Lost Her Tongue. Finally, Moses Nagel reports on the call to cancel the Bard College course called Apartheid in Israel-Palestine by the Jewish Federation of Ulster County. But first, here are some headlines. Several employees at the Tesla factory in New York have been fired a day after launching union organizing efforts, according to Tesla Workers United. The Rochester Regional Joint Board of Workers United has filed a complaint against Tesla with the National Labor Relations Board, accusing the electric vehicle maker of unfair labor practices. Reginald Goodman, a 49-year-old man charged in the deadly shooting last year of Sean Koontz in Waterbleed, was acquitted of second-degree murder on the grounds that he shot Koontz in self-defense. Koontz, reportedly a member of the Bloods gang, broke into Goodman's apartment saying he wanted his money. Goodman, however, remains in jail and faces a possible sentence of 15 years for illegal gun possession due to his prior criminal record. The city of Troy is seeking candidates to serve on the Police Objective Review Board. The goals of the Police Objective Review Board are to improve communication between the police department and the community and to create a complaint view process. Applications will be accepted until April 30th. Shortly after the white supremacist gunman who killed 10 black people at a Buffalo supermarket was sentenced to life in state prison, he has been transferred to federal authorities for trial on federal hate crime charges, which has the potential for the death penalty. We'll hear more about this later. Andy Pelota, the longtime leader of the New York State United Teachers Union, is retiring. He's endorsing Melinda Person, currently NYSUT executive director, to replace him. Pelota declared victory against former uh, Governor Cuomo, whom he described as anti-education. Climate activists have criticized Pelota for blocking state legislation to divest fossil fuels from the state teachers' pension fund, even though the teachers' union has repeatedly passed resolutions in favor of the divestment. And we just had two headlines about shootings. According to the website gunviolencearchive.org, Counting the shooting in El Paso, Texas on Wednesday the 15th, the U.S. has had 72 mass shootings in 2023, averaging just over 1.5 mass shootings per day. And that's it for the headlines. Wow, that's heavy. 
For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute your time by joining our team uh, or giving us financial support, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call us. 518-272-2390. Schools in New York State lost at least $1.8 billion in the fiscal year 2021 to corporate tax abatements by industrial development authorities called IDAs. Ron Deutsch of New Yorkers for Fiscal Fairness discusses what IDAs are and why fiscal watchdogs feel that they should be eliminated. Mark Dunley reports. We're joined by Ron Deutsch, who is the director of the New York um, New Yorkers for Fiscal Fairness. And along with Good Jobs First, they recently released a report showing that uh, corporations are getting uh, tax breaks through something called IDAs that basically cost the local school districts $1.8 billion a year or more. So, Ron, I, I, I've known you for quite a while. Um, industrial development authorities have been something you've been trying to reform for a long time. What's new about this particular report that uh, you and Good Jobs First and others just put out? Well, I think there are a number of new things. And yes, uh, you know, I've been uh, oddly frustrated for the last 30 years or so that we've been trying to reform so many economic development programs because you know, study after study, uh, at least independent academic studies that have been done that aren't industry studies, um, clearly show that there's just no return on investment for all these types of corporate giveaways and abatements. Um, but there are people who pay the price for this. And and all too often in New York State, those are school children. So really what we did um, on uh, February 8th, we we worked with Good Jobs First. We worked with a number of other groups like Reinvent Albany, Strong Economy for All, New York Council of Churches, and others um, to really highlight the fact that these industrial development agencies, of which there are about 107 of them across New York State, um, are abating about $1.8 billion a year, at least in fiscal year 2021, where we have data um, they're abating school taxes to the tune of $1.8 billion. So how does this actually work, right? So IDAs are basically these industrial development agencies that are kind of quasi-governmental agencies that can abate uh, or give away, if you will, school taxes, property taxes, uh, sales taxes in order to lure new businesses or existing businesses to be in a given area. So unfortunately, what they do is as they abate school taxes or basically tell a company that you don't have to pay school taxes for 10 years, um, that gets shifted down to everybody else. And it's, you know, basically our schools suffer uh, from loss of revenue um, that they should be getting. So um, you know, Senator Ryan uh, and Assemblyman Bronson each have a bill. Um, same as Bill in both houses, and they actually they are also both the respective chairs of the economic development committees in both their houses, uh, basically to put an end to this. Their bill just is a very simple bill. It says IDAs, whether they are county, city, or town, 
cannot give away school district money, period. So a quick question. You mentioned these are quasi-government bodies, very, very heavily tied into the local political establishment. So when these IDAs, which are basically a political operation, um, decide that, hey, we're going to give this tax break to a certain company to come in, do they then go to the school board and say, hey, we're about to give a tax break away for the next 10 years? Is the school board okay with this? Do they, they seek advance permission? No, generally not. There was just a law signed by um, Governor Hochul um, that now requires the IDA just to notify the school board. Prior to that, they didn't even have to notify the school board that they were giving away their revenue. Uh, school boards, you know, rarely sit on the IDAs themselves, a school board member, which would make sense if the IDA is allowed to give away school district funding. Um, and school districts don't get a say in whether or not they want to accept this abatement. Uh, oftentimes, school districts would probably rather have that revenue um, than have a new department store in town or you know, A&W root beer as one of the more recent cases was. Um, so, you know, I, I think the reality is schools need a say in this. Um, but other states like South Carolina, Florida, Alabama, I mean, uh, you know, they already prevent uh, local uh, economic development authorities from giving away school district revenue. So, you know, the fact that we're behind Alabama on this is particularly troubling to me. Now, the cynics among us, you know, will probably argue that, you know, these IDAs are giving away these tax breaks based on political considerations, starting with campaign contributions. But, you know, the politicians are, oh, no, no, no. You know, we're trying to promote economic development in our community. We're trying to create jobs. And, you know, long term by having that, that will increase local tax revenues. How has the documentation been for these companies receiving these uh, tax breaks? Have they actually delivered on, you know, their job creation and tax generation promises? You know, it's it's number one, generally no. Comptroller does reporting on this all the time, looking at IDAs, their job creation promises versus what they deliver, and they consistently fall short. Many aren't even reporting um, this type of essential information to the comptroller's office as they should be. Um, so, you know, for decades, we've just been kind of operating in the same fashion um, with these IDAs. And, and another thing to note, is that um, IDAs, when they give away uh, school district money or property tax money, um, they get a fee for service um, for uh, providing this abatement. So they are also incentivized, as a matter of fact, to provide um, these abatements, whether these companies need them or not, because that's how they fund themselves. Uh, so, you know, th this whole system is entirely broken. Uh, and as a result of uh, some arcane uh, new reporting rule in the Government Accounting Standards Board, or GASB, which is Statement 77, it basically now requires school districts to basically tally how much money they're losing um, to many of these uh, IDA giveaways. So, you know, some students, uh, you know, some school districts, um, like Peekskill, where nearly nine out of 10 students are, are, are of color, are losing $5,000 per student. 
Um, the average tax abatement cost about $541 per pupil um, throughout the state. But, you know, in some areas that is much, much higher per pupil. And generally in those areas where it's higher is the areas with the greatest needs. Um, so this is really just a mess. And we really need to reform uh, so many of these IDAs. A, a good example uh, next week, Senator Skoufis is going to be having a press conference uh, in Orange County. And uh, Orange County provided IDA financing and abatements to a company that basically checked the box and said, we do not need abatements to move into this area. Yet they provided them anyway, regardless of the fact that they didn't need them. So I think that speaks volumes as to what's wrong with this system uh, and why it's screaming out for reform. Now, I first became aware of IDAs when former Senate uh, Senator Joe Bruno um, basically was using IDAs to help price chopper build new supermarkets and, and rinse their county. Often they would just put it right between the two unionized supermarkets, I think Grand Union, maybe A and P. And then in exchange, the head of price chopper kindly lent the union pension fund to Joe Bruno as a loan to allow him to sell his so-called telephone company to become his so-called self-made millionaire. So this has been a problem now for, for 30 years. What is the likelihood that the state legislature is going to crack down on their fellow politicians at the county level that are cutting all these deals with politically connected uh, firms to give away these tax breaks? Yeah, look, I've been fighting on this for a long time. And I, I'm trying to remain optimistic that we can get reforms. We've gotten incremental reforms over the years, um, but this system is screaming out for a major overhaul. Um, we keep engaging in this race to the bottom that seems to be never ending. Um, and at some point, we have to make this determination that we need to start redefining what we think of as economic development because these traditional subsidies and abatements and giveaways to corporations simply do not work. Corporations, when they site in a location, are looking for a skilled workforce. So we know that taking that money and instead of giving it to corporations, we should be investing it in higher ed and job training. Those are the things that attract businesses. We're, we're, we're out of time. Ron Deutsch, New York's Fiscal Fairness. If people want to see this report, get a website or anything. Uh, yes, you can go to goodjobsfirst.org. Thank you very much. And this has been Mark Dunley with the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thanks to Mark for that report on some of the workings of the industrial development agencies and authorities in New York State. For more details, you can also look for State Senator Sean Ryan's report on tax breaks costing schools big money. On May 14th, Peyton... Grendren, a lone gunman, shot and killed 10 people at a Topps market in Buffalo. Our roaming labor correspondent, Willie Terry, brings us these excerpts from Judge Susan Egan, speaking on Wednesday, February 15th, sentencing Gendron to life imprisonment with no chance of parole. I would like to thank you all for being here. And to thank those of you who have shared your thoughts and feelings with the courts, either in writing or in open court here today. It is very meaningful to me, and I believe that it is important for the defendant and the world to hear what you have to say. 
I am very sorry for your losses and the pain that you feel. I would like to recognize the heroic officers of the Buffalo Police Department who without hesitation ran towards the danger of an active shooter call, swiftly and professionally stopping and containing the defendant and putting an end to his evil rampage. Thank you. I have spent a lot of time thinking about this case. Our community, our nation, how we got here and where we go from here. It all comes down to character and having the strength to stand up for what is right. Our character is not defined by the good and easy times. It is defined by the hard and challenging times. And often, our character is revealed not necessarily by what we say, but by what we do. I am both immensely proud of and grateful for the way Buffalo has rejected the evil and hate that was inflicted on our community. The character of good people throughout this city, county, state, nation, and even internationally, has shown through as they have stood with the victims of this heinous and cruel act. This indictment speaks to the 13 victims and their families that lost the most, but they are not the only victims. There are thousands that have been traumatized directly and vicariously by this defendant's actions. We have seen the community turn out in support and are seeing signs of much needed change in East Buffalo. It is a testament to the power of love and compassion to overcome evil and hate by turning pain into purpose. But it is just the beginning. We have a long way to go. This hateful act and other similar hateful acts across the country, motivated by white supremacy and replacement theory, are a reckoning for us as a nation. The ugly truth is that our nation was founded and built in part on white supremacy, starting with the treatment of Native Americans by the first European settlers, to the cruel, inhumane, economic engine, nation-building practice of slavery, to indentured servitude, to Jim Crow laws, to government policies creating segregated public housing with communities of color often placed in environmentally hazardous locations. To the manner in which expressways were built, dividing urban neighborhoods 
to create easy access to government-subsidized developments in the suburbs with restricted covenants prohibiting the sale of suburban homes to African Americans, to redlining practices in communities of color, further devaluing those neighborhoods, to the GI Bill, a well-deserved financial boon to our servicemen, unless, of course, you were a serviceman of color to the war on drugs and mass incarceration disproportionately of men of color, to the school-to-prison pipeline, to inequities in education, employment opportunities, and compensation, to the existence of food deserts and inadequacies in healthcare. Our history is replete with both individual and systemic discriminatory practices, many of them still firmly in place today. In fact, it is these very policies and practices that contributed to and made this atrocity possible. The effects of these policies, some current and others decades and centuries old, created the segregation in our city and enabled this defendant to research and identify his target to maximize the impact of his evil intent. All of these policies and systems, either sponsored or tolerated by the government and implemented by individuals, were designed to destroy the very fabric of family life, opportunities for success, the creation of generational wealth, and even the mere existence of hope in communities of color. The harsh reality is that white supremacy has been an insidious cancer on our society and nation since its inception and it undermines the notions of a meritocracy and the land of opportunity that we hold so dear. However, white supremacy is not inevitable or unstoppable. It has been carefully cultivated and nurtured by individuals and the government for centuries. This is the history that we have all inherited it has been passed down from generation to generation. We must acknowledge that history. See that history for what it is. Recognize it and learn from it or we are doomed to repeat it. Let ours be the generation to put a stop to it. We can do better. We must do better. Our own humanity requires it. As an individual, we must call out injustice in our daily lives when we see it. 
We must reject racism in all of its forms. We must be conscious of the power of our words and actions and the impact they have on those around us, both intended and unintended. We must demand better of our public servants in their efforts to address inequity. And we must embrace government policies aimed at creating and fostering diversity, equity, and inclusion. We must make the outpouring of support, love, and compassion that followed this heinous act an everyday practice. We are stronger together. These are hard and challenging times. Our characters are being tested. The future of our nation is at stake. Are we up to the challenge? I believe that we are. In the words of Poet Laureate Amanda Gorman, there is always light. If only we are brave enough to see it. If only we are brave enough to be it. Mr. Gendron, please stand. There is no place for you or your ignorant, hateful, and evil ideologies in a civilized society. There can be no mercy for you, no understanding, no second chances. The damage you have caused is too great and the people you have hurt are too valuable to this community. You will never see the light of day as a free man ever again. It is the judgment of this court for your conviction under the first count of the indictment, a domestic act of terrorism motivated by hate in the first degree, an A1 felony that you be sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. Thanks to Willie Terry for bringing us those excerpts from Judge Susan Egan's sentencing of white supremacist Peyton Gendron for his killing of 10 black people in Buffalo on May 14th, starting with their providing the historic context of systemic racism. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm Bria Barthel. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network, WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany plus streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Sharing is caring. Spreading the word about what we do it is a really big impact. 
Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. And now we hear from correspondent Garrett McCary about the various services offered by the Rensselaer County Soil and Water Conservation District, including their Envirothon and an upcoming plant and tree sale. Hello, Hudson Mohawk Magazine listeners. This is your irregular reporter, Garrett McCary, and today I'm speaking with Megan Myers, who is the district manager for the Rensselaer County Soil and Water Conservation District. Thanks for speaking with us, Megan. Hi, Garrett. Thanks for having me. Uh, Megan, um, a lot of people wonder what exactly is the Soil and Water Conservation District. Uh, so, so if you could, were to explain what your mission is or what you do, uh, could, you, could you explain that to our listeners? Sure. Um, we've been providing technical assistance throughout the county since 1949. We focus primarily on water quality, soil stabilization, and um, natural resource concerns. So we have a couple of events that are coming up that we'll talk about later here, but uh, why don't you exp- talk about some of the projects that you're working on right now? We are currently juggling three stream stabilization projects. About six months ago, we just completed a large culvert replacement for water quality and fish passage um, and to help out some um, agricultural lands. Um, We have a second stream crossing project in the works that we will complete this summer. We are also assessing culverts throughout Rensselaer County right now. The town of Nassau has been done. Uh, We completed the town of Steventown and now we're finishing up uh, three more towns which is Grafton, Berlin and Brunswick. In all, we have completed nearly 500 culvert assessments in the county. Uh, We're hoping to secure more funding to do all of the towns in Rensselaer County um, eventually in the long term. And what exactly are you looking for in culvert uh, assessment? We assess them for fish passability and uh, barriers uh, potential flooding. If the culvert's uh, providing a barrier, it's most likely flooding um, during heavy rainstorms. We're also checking it out for the structure, um, the integrity of the structure um, as well. So if I were uh, a landowner, is this really just for the uh, uh, municipalities or would a private landowner also benefit from this? Primarily, it's the streams that are perennial that would have fish in them. We're interested in um, being able to have a crossing that is not uh, providing a barrier to fish passage and spawning for them. And you're involved with farmers a lot in the county, and people don't really realize how many farms we actually have here in the county. It really is a rural county here. So what uh, what are you in particular doing for the farmers? Our f- Priority focus is on the Tom Hannock Reservoir Watershed. We have an AIM program. Um, It stands for Agricultural Environmental Management. It's uh, through New York State Ag and Markets, and each round provides $100,000 in funding for farmers for best management practices that we work with. Um, And that can include stream stabilization and stream crossings um, that we've been focusing on the last couple of years. So we usually work with, it's around uh, three farmers each round to um, help them um, do a water quality 
practice with best management practices to help, you know, address natural resource concerns on their properties. Uh, you also have a, uh, a drinking water program. Can you tell, tell us about that? We have uh, free drinking water sampling kits that we hand out um, upon request that samples um, several different types of contaminants and um, in, in your uh, drinking water, your tap water. And uh, all you have to do is call here and request for one. We can um, get it to you. Uh, would, that, would that include uh, lead? Yes, it does. It includes lead um, and includes bacteria. Um, and there's about 11 different items that test your water for. That seems uh, particularly important for people because now we're discovering that there's a lot more in our water than we ever thought before. Yes, that's right. Uh, two events that are coming up that people need to know about are your tree and shrub sale and something called the Envirothon. So let's cover the tree and shrub sale first. Yep. Our tree and shrub sale is going to be held on April 21st and 22nd. Um, that will be um, pickup day for your orders that you put in, um, which we're accepting orders now. That's going to be in Hoosick Falls for uh, the pickups. They're bare root trees, bare root shrubs, and we also have uh, strawberries and asparagus available too to order. It's a large, a large event, and um, our uh, you can order online right off of our website. We have trees from uh, maples to birches, elms, shrubs. Uh, we have beautiful dogwoods and nine barks, blueberries, lots of berry, different plants with berries on them this year. Um, we might already even be sold out of apples, but we, we there might be some apples left as well. Yep. The ordering is open now to the public, and the pickup date for your order tree and shrub orders is going to be at the Hoosick Falls Ice Skating Rink um, on April 21st and 22nd. And how do people order? Go right to our website. It's uh, www.rensco.soilandstormwater.org. So let's talk about the Envirothon. The Envirothon, it's a capital region Envirothon. Um, it's held every May. Each county uh, submits schools with teams to participate in the Capital Region Envirothon. We're looking for high school teams and middle school teams. Currently, we have um, Berlin Central School participating and Hoosick Falls Central School, but we'd love to have more school districts become involved in the Capital Region Envirothon. Um, the team, each team in the county that wins moves on to the New York State Championships as well. That's usually in late May. What is exciting coming up for the Envirothon is the National Envirothon is coming to New York State in 2024, which is um, going to be all hands on deck and it's going to be really fun. Well, what exactly uh, do the teams do for Envirothon? So each team is a competitive test. Um, they have stations they go around at. They, one station is on soils, one station is on wildlife, another is on aquatics, and they also um, give presentations on a topic. It's, uh, a long, it's a long day, but it's really fun. And they also, I think, do forestry as well at one of the stations. 
And again, they, uh, someone could call you or, or go to your website to find out more about this? Yep, we have um, a whole tab on our website, and you could call us and um, ask how to register, and we can send you the forms. Making site visits, working with landowners that call us, they want some advice about their lake or their pond or their, their land, their forest. We have forestry projects as well, and uh, stream, you know, helps with their streams too. Yeah, it's a wide variety of the natural resources we could help them out with. Uh, we also offer mapping. Uh, we have uh, historical mapping that we can offer for landowners if they want to see, you know, 50 years ago what their land looked like uh, as well. Um, so we have all of that here at the office. We also offer uh, public trainings, professionals in the field for like erosion control, sediment prevention, uh, we just held one on November 3rd in Grafton, and uh, we had uh, around, uh, I think, 40 people attend that from different government agencies um, and municipalities and just um, engineers working in the private sector came. Going to be turned into a uh, an annual um, training. I've been speaking with Megan Myers, who's the district manager of the Rensselaer County Soil and Water Conservation District. Thank you, Megan. You're welcome. Sounds like some great events coming up. And for more details, visit www.rens, that's R-E-N-S-C-O-S-O-I-L, soilandstormwater.org. And for that website, you can find that with a story on our website. And for our next story, I recently talked with Paul Stewart co-founder of the Underground Railroad Education Center, about their upcoming event that explores in part the connection between Harriet Tubman and, wait for it, Beyonce. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and today I'm talking once again with Paul Stewart, one of the co-founders with his wife Mary Liz Stewart of the Underground Railroad Education Center. We heard in a previous interview that they just have heaps of stuff going on in February because it's Black History Month. And Paul, just give us a quick reminder of what the Underground Railroad Education Center is all about before we get to information about an exciting program coming up on Friday the 17th. Yes. Yeah, so thank you, Bria. The Underground Railroad Education Center is a nonprofit organization. We've been around since 2003. And basically what we're doing is re-examining and re-exploring the story of the Underground Railroad. We found it's transformative. And so as a result of that, we, we want to kind of share that story with the broader public. And when you say broader public, it's also a broader story that you're sharing. You're not just looking at abolitionism back in the 1860s, but also connecting that activity to now. Can you say a little bit about how you connect with current sure. times? So, so as we looked at the Underground Railroad story across the, the, the 1820s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, uh, we, um, we found that the story has a lot of, of uh, I wanna say predecessors or, or reach that, that there's a, there's a pre-story that's important uh, to telling and understanding the Underground Railroad story. And then of course, then there's a post story as well um, that we see the Underground Railroad as, as, a, as a moment in the broader African-American freedom struggle. So it's, it's a story that doesn't end with, with the, the 1850s and 60s, but, but really reaches forward in time 
Uh, it really is the first civil rights movement and uh, many of the things that happened during the Underground Railroad period uh, continue uh, throughout over time into our present day. And on Friday the 17th, which is tomorrow or today, depending on when people are listening to this broadcast, you have an interesting speaker talking about some of the context of that freedom struggle. struggle. Can you tell us about what's coming up? Yeah, so Professor Janelle Hobson, who is a professor of gender and sexuality studies at the State University of New York at Albany, uh, the University at Albany, uh, she's going to be talking about her book, uh, which was published uh, a year or so ago called When God Lost Her Tongue. Um, And, uh, you know, that's you you think of that. Well, that's a a title that sort of grabs you and, you know, you, you sort of say, well, let's figure out what she's talking about there. And and the story actually um, kind of jumps, the jumping off point is is from a Haitian uh, folktale uh, around the Haitian Revolution, uh, when an African deity is invoked, in a sense, brought across the ocean uh, to Haiti uh, at a gathering in the woods uh, with the focus of, uh, you know, kind of... Um, uh, allowing these captive uh, women leaders to really ignite the Haitian revolution. And so um, she kind of takes that as a jumping off point. And then she begins looking at roles that uh, Black women uh, have played in terms of various European paintings uh, and uh, mm. African women on both sides of the continent, uh, but both sides of the uh, the door of no return, uh, uh, you know, from the slave castles in West Africa, and then uh, showing how that fit in the transatlantic slave trade. And she's bringing it forward to contemporary times with uh, Beyonce and uh, Janelle Monet uh, and a number of other figures uh, and, and, and wrapping in uh, people like Harriet Tubman along the way. So it's, it's a, it's a. Somehow I wouldn't expect to hear a book that combines Beyonce and Harriet Tubman. Interesting. uh, Connections there. Well, I, th- I think it's a great, uh, you know, romp through through thinking and imagination and art, uh, and, and I think that's it's, it's going to be something that people will really enjoy uh, engaging with. Really, you mentioned the Haitian Revolution and part of history that we never got taught when I was a kid was that Haiti was founded by freedom seekers, right? That's that's right. So people who were enslaved in Haiti. <laughs> Uh, there was a, a large uprising, uh, and in the course of that uprising, they fought against the French army. Uh, they fought against mercenaries that the French sent to Haiti, uh, Polish mercenaries who were, you know, regarded as among the best mercenaries. And you know, if you're if you're going to go out and hire mercenaries, and 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 it, and it's the 18th century, the early early uh, 19th century, you, you're going to going to go get Polish mercenaries. Uh, and they were sent to the island, and and the the revolution that was launched there really sort of chewed up all of these uh, elements uh, that that had come to try to put the revolution down, and, and eventually the revolution was successful. So it was the first uh, it was the a black republic uh, established in the in the Americas, in the North America, South America, and and it, and it was really patterned after or inspired by the American Revolution, which I think is uh, an absolutely uh, intriguing uh, idea inspired by the American Revolution, and yet at the same time, uh, those who were in America and many others, colonial powers, uh, were really 
trying to control and put down and, and minimize uh, the Haitian Revolution. And in the years that we consider the years of the Underground Railroad, 1820s, 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, the Haitian Revolution was hanging in the background as something that slaveholders kind of sat in fear about, you know, thinking that, oh my gosh, you know, you know, we've got all these folks enslaved and they might uprise and, and take us out. So um, uh, it, it, it is, it's interesting, it's intriguing that it, that it was a, a revolution that was inspired by the American Revolution and yet at the same time, certainly also by the quest for freedom of the people on the ground, the freedom seekers. And I think that Janelle Hobson is, is, I think people will see some of the interconnectedness there of uh, that core story and the other elements that she's going to bring out with other figures uh, through uh, Black women that have been featured in various prominent European paintings uh, and, and also uh, some other figures. And once again, getting back to Beyonce and uh, Janelle Monet and some other people. So, And certainly the role of women in civil rights. I mean, you can name Rosa Parks and maybe Fannie Lou Hamer, and then often yeah. people are stuck to think of anybody else. And in <clears throat> excuse me, an Underground Railroad, it's like, wait, there was somebody besides Harriet Tubman? Yeah, so it's yeah. great to have this richer story. Uh, full disclosure, I've been a volunteer with Underground Railroad Education Center for off and on for a number of years and used to help plan and attend the conferences. And what I found, one of the many things I found fascinating at the conferences was the expanded geographic distribution of Underground Railroad. We often think of people escaping north, escaping to the north of the U.S. and then going on to Canada. And yet at the time, there were also freedom seekers making it to Haiti and down to Mexico and yeah, Florida. And other places in the Caribbean as well, as well as people going across the ocean, both to Europe and Africa. Uh, you know, there are a number of stories that stand out uh, such as William and Ellen Craft, who, you know, they they didn't feel comfortable, although they had gotten their freedom, they didn't feel comfortable uh, staying on in Boston, and they wound up going to to England uh, to make sure they stayed free and were not pursued. So it, it's it's a a story with a lot of aspects that I think people in general uh, have not explored. And there's a new book about the crafts, if I can think of the right words, master slave husband wife uh because mm -hmm. the wife disguised herself as a man she had pale skin disguised herself as a man and her husband traveled with her as her slave and that yeah. was how they were able to go on public transportation and you know quite right. openly right and i i think this idea of the uh uh open uh transit um is something that that uh people haven't wrestled with enough in terms of the Underground Railroad story. You know, everybody's kind of intrigued by this idea of the secrecy and hiding and that sort of thing. But there's quite a bit of stuff that was done quite out in the open and regular transportation uh, played a role, uh, whether on canal boats or river boats or uh, ferry boats or, uh, you know, um, uh, the other kinds of public transportation that were available. Okay, so the event again is Professor Janelle Hobson, from right. Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University at Albany, talking about her book, When God Lost Her Tongue, 
which covers the role of black women in the Haitian Revolution and obviously far beyond, if it gets to Beyonce. Right. Uh, where's this happening? At uh, Professor Javis, uh, which is at Wolf Road Shoppers Park. Uh, so it's on Wolf Road in the shopping center called Shoppers Park. Uh, please get there at uh, 530. There, there, there is a Zoom option. Uh, so if you want to exploit that Zoom option, you need to go to our website at undergroundrailroadhistory.org. Uh, and you can pick up the Zoom link there. And that's on again on Friday, February 17th, 5:30, Professor Java's Janelle Hobson, Gender and Sexuality Studies at UAlbany. Paul and Mary Liz Stewart, co-instigators of the Underground Railroad Education Center. Thanks for taking time to talk with me again, Paul. Thanks very much, Bria. We I really appreciate it. And this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine signing off. As mentioned, this presentation with Professor Janelle Hobson is a hybrid event. And for those who want to find the link for the online streaming uh, and as well as other events coming up at the Underground Railroad in Albany, undergroundrailroadhistory.org slash events. And for our final segment, Moses Nagel talks with Hudson Valley peace activist Fred Nagel about an upcoming course at Bard College on apartheid in Israel-Palestine and opposition to that course by an extremely conservative pro-Israel organization. I'm speaking with Fred Nagel, who's a Hudson Valley peace activist, a U.S. veteran, and the host of Activist Radio on WVKR in Poughkeepsie. And thanks for talking to me, Fred. I wanted to ask you about a letter to the editor that you were sending out this week. Mm -hmm about the controversy surrounding a class being offered at Bard College. Can you give me a little background on it? Sure. Well, essentially, it's David Drimmer from the Jewish Federation of Ulster County uh, has attacked uh, Bard uh, and Botstein, the head of Bard College, for offering a course on apartheid in Israel-Palestine. So. Uh, his letter goes down through all the reasons why uh, he's against this course being given. And uh, so that's essentially the, the conflict uh, involved uh, involves students at Bard because there's a very active Students for Justice in Palestine at Bard College. It involves um, other professors. And in fact, it involves the whole Hudson Valley because very similar things have happened to Vassar College over the last five or six years. I think the title of the class is uh, something like Human Rights in Israel, Palestine, and Apartheid. So why should we be concerned about his opinion on this class? I mean, sure, this is one person who opposes this class, but why should we be sure. worried about that? Uh, well... I think it's worrisome that a person would uh, use religion to attack what's being taught at a college, attack a professor who's a renowned human rights uh, scholar. And you know we're in a country that pretends that religion sh shouldn't uh, instruct political beliefs or freedom of speech, but this is a crossing over where David Drimmer, you know, essentially is representing Israel. And uh, he doesn't want Bard College to have a course 
that makes it look like Israel is an apartheid state. Uh, as most human rights organizations have affirmed that uh, Israel is an apartheid state and the discrimination and racism that Israel shows to its Palestinians are somewhat akin to the racism that we see in our own country, our, our centuries of racism against black people. So that's an interesting point, because in the letter, you draw a parallel between trying to stop a course like this to some of the national movement, and specifically in Florida, led right. by Ron DeSantis, against what they call critical race theory or education about race in, in high schools. Explain what what the parallel you see there is. Well, you know, Ron DeSantis uh, does not want a course taught uh, these are from the College Board Advanced Placement course. He says that uh, he's not going to allow this course to be taught in in Florida uh, since it makes white students uh, uncomfortable. I think he, that was one of the words he used. Ashamed was another one of the words. Uh, he doesn't want to expose his uh, lily white uh, students in Florida to any, really any mention of the type of racism and Jim Crow violence that black people have faced in Florida, certainly claiming the right to take our history away from us, at least a history of black people away from us. And really, the consideration of history is what drives social movements. If you don't know about the history of how blacks have been treated in this country um, going back centuries, uh, then you're not going to come out and fight for their rights. So I see why Ron DeSantis wants to get into the curriculum and throw out black studies, but his his reasoning is completely racist. It's the, it's the reasoning of racist America for hundreds of years. Um, and I draw a parallel to that racist hatreds to what David Drimmer is doing, claiming that uh, Israel has a right to tell Bard College what their courses should be. It's a very similar uh, assumption that individuals have that they have a right, and sometimes a religious right, like David Drimmer talks all about, how uh, this is a religious uh, thing, this is all about the Holocaust and all about anti-Semitism, and uh, he attacks the course in that way. So we're looking at an attack on education, essentially, aren't we? And, and then, and most fascists make that attack, um, you know, early on in their assumption of power. They have to control the narrative in education. And it kind of boils down to creating no differentiation between criticizing the state of Israel and its actions with anti-Semitism, you know, which is a tactic that's been around for a while. I think we've even discussed it before. Sure. And there's been some pretty high-profile cases nationally just very recently. I mean, the James Cavallaro, that's the human rights envoy that Biden had appointed, that he just mm. withdrew the appointment because of some yep. of him expressing very similar things about Israel. And then Kenneth Ross at Harvard. He, they reversed he's a human that rights, again, didn't they? Yeah. They reversed it. But yeah. he he was uh, he lost his appointment to Harvard, and he's a person that's been respected and been around for decades and decades in, in all of the human rights organizations. So do you see this 
as coordinated as part of the same thing or just a similar tactic that's being used? I mean, what do you, how do you connect those? I think the younger people in the U.S., and that includes students at uh, Bard and Vassar, uh, have become more and more aware of uh, apartheid in Israel and are pushing harder than they ever pushed before. There's several organizations. Uh, one is the Mideast Crisis Response, and that's been around for about 10 years. And then there's Jewish Voice for Peace, and they've been around for maybe four or five years. But these organizations have uh, a full plate of activities, uh, from marches to letters to the editor to talking to congressional representatives about the Israel lobby and its effect on uh, policy, on U.S. policy, because there's just more people doubtful about Israel policy and, and more people uh, looking for alternatives to sending Israel $3.8 billion a year while they you know, shoot and murder people in the West Bank and Gaza. People eventually are seeing that as a fascist assault, a racist assault on a particular population. So it was bound to happen. And the pro-Israel lobby is so successful and has been so successful over decades. Almost every congressional representative we have from the House and Senate get money from the Israel lobby. In the last two election cycles, we've seen the Israel lobby go after a number of progressive candidates in the primaries. And the reason they don't like progressive candidates is that these progressive candidates question the U.S. dealings with Israel. So we see the Israel lobby is incredibly powerful. You can go on something called opensecrets.org and you can uh, verify how much your various uh, House representatives and Senate representatives are getting from the Israel lobby. And what's, what's going to really strike you as you read these numbers is how many people are taking tens of thousands of dollars from the Israel lobby. And what are they getting in return? Well, they're getting the fact that they don't ever talk about Israel-Palestine. But you can tell that the lobby is you know, fighting back. And this attack on Bard College is just a part of their assumption that they have a right to interfere in college and high school education, which I think should be fashioned around freedom of speech and inquiry rather than fashioned around what Israel wants us to be talking about in colleges. Is there anything else you'd like to add just for for people that feel inspired by this? Uh, well, you could check with your college to see if they have a Students for Justice in Palestine, SJP. And you have a weekly radio show, is that right? Yep, on Vassar College Radio, 91.3 FM, Thursdays from 5 to 6. Uh, tune in, or if you miss that, just go to classwars.org and you can listen to our last 10 programs. Classwars.org, I'd love to have you come to the website and take a look at the people that I interview. That was Hudson Mohawk Magazine correspondent Moses Nagel speaking with Hudson Valley peace activist Fred Nagel. And that is our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki, engineer and co-host with... I'm Bria Barthel. 
Thanks to all of our fellow volunteers who made this episode possible, including Mark Dunley, Willie Terry, Garrett McCary, and Moses Nagel. And thanks to you, our listeners, who make this all worthwhile. <laughs>